Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dagena Dor, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we are really honored to have three guests with us. Professor Robert Barnett, Professor Benno Weiner, and Professor Francois Robin um, on the show to talk about their new edited volume, a really exciting book um, called Conflicting Memories, Tibetan History Under Mao Retold, published by Bro in 2020. Uh, welcome to the show, everyone. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you. Uh, I'm just going to quickly introduce our guests today, and we'll let them talk about themselves a little bit. So Professor Barnett is actually currently a professorial research associate at the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London, and an affiliate lecturer at King's College London. Um, He also founded and directed the Modern Tibetan Studies Program at Columbia University in New York from 1999 to 2018. And he's also the author and editor of a number of books on modern Tibet. And Professor Françoise Robin uh, teaches Tibetan language and literature at uh, the French National Institute for Oriental Languages and Civilizations. Um, she has been engaged in Tibetan studies for the last 25 years, so she's really an expert in the field, um, observing the evolution of Tibetan society under the political, economic, linguistic, and cultural dominations of China. Um, her PhD was actually the first to explore contemporary Tibetan literature and its relevance uh, for our understanding of today's Tibetan society. And lastly, Professor Benno Weiner is an associate professor of Chinese history at Carnegie Mellon University. He's also the author of a new book uh, that just came out recently, The Chinese Revolution on the Tibetan Frontier, published by the Cornell University Press in 2020. Um, he's also recently published articles on ethnic minorities on the borderland of the PRC's history. Um, you can look into his work furthermore. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, so let's maybe begin our interview with some self-introductions. Uh, please say a few words about yourself and specifically how you became interested in Tibetan studies. Uh, so maybe we'll start with Professor Barnett first. Oh, Thanks. Well, it's great to be here. And um, I should say that my entry into Tibetan studies is a little bit unorthodox. I, I, didn't, I don't come from an academic background. I don't have academic training, really. But I worked for many years in theater and circus and film. And one year, actually, 1987, I was performing in Hong Kong. And 
after I'd finished my, uh, my, my shows there, I um, had some time free, so I traveled as a tourist through China and across Tibet on my way to India. And while I was in Tibet, I happened to stumble across what was really the first protest by Tibetans uh, ever seen by foreigners. There were about a, maybe 50 or 100 foreigners in, in Lhasa at that time. So I just became an eyewitness to that event and later started writing about it. And when I later came out of the Tibet, um, you know, journalists and other people asked me to write more. And it gradually, I gradually realized I was stunned, really, that nobody professional, no academics were writing about this. So I started a, a project of my own with a, some colleagues, some friends, and, and we began our own project, collecting information and researching into what was happening in Tibet, and that's gradually built up into the work that I've done since. Oh, thank you. That's, that's really fascinating. I didn't know about um, uh, your experience in circus. <laughs> thank you for sharing that with us. And, and Professor Hoven, would you like to share something about yourself? Yeah, hello. Uh, thank you for inviting us to your very interesting program. And it's certainly not as uh, unorthodox as Robbie's uh, in, uh, coming in across the um, uh, Tibetan world. So first, I traveled to the Himalayas region after reading Snow Leopard by Peter Mathieson. And I had no idea there was such a thing as uh, Tibetan studies at that time. And um, when I returned to France, I wanted I started to learn Tibetan language and I wanted to study Buddhism. But then I discovered through my courses at uh, in Alco, where I teach now, and I went, then I was a student under Heather Stoddard's supervision. I discovered that was Tibet was a highly literary world, and uh, as it happens, I really like literature, so I focused more on language and literature. I was able to soon travel to Lhasa, spend almost one school year at Tibet University uh, and became really interested in the current political context uh, under the PRC, of Tibet under the PRC. Then I kept studying and studying and um, uh, learning the language, traveling back and forth. Um, and then <laughs> gradually I just did a PhD and, you know, this is how I engaged uh, in Tibetan studies. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. And um, Professor Weiner, please. Sure. Thank you. Uh, again, great to be here. Uh, I guess my story is not, certainly not as exciting as Robbie's or maybe as interesting as Francois's. Uh, but both as, a, as an undergraduate and after getting my degree, so I actually went to the University of California, Santa Barbara, where I think you're at. Um, I uh, spent a good amount of time traveling in, in China and found myself a lot in Western and Southern China. And it really began to pique my interest in the remarkable ethnocultural diversity that exists um, in, in those regions. Uh, and it was really something I was only vaguely aware of previously, probably. So we're not talk just talking about Tibetans, but a whole host of people that are now considered to be you know, minority nationalities or ethnic minorities by the state. So Uyghurs and Mongols, Bai, Dai, Zhuang, Dong, Hui Muslims, and, and many, many other people. And sort of a budding historian or someone who's trying to think historically it got me thinking about how they came to be minorities in their own homelands, essentially, um, and sort of what, what, at what cost that, that happened um, at. And so when I decided to go to graduate school, I knew I wanted to work on borderlands. I knew I wanted to work on non-Han peoples. But frankly, I wasn't really thinking about working on Tibet or Tibetans. At the time, I was more interested in Inner Mongolia. I was more interested in Xinjiang, probably. But you know, fortunately, I guess, I, I ended up at Columbia uh, University 
uh, where one of my first classes was being taught by, by Robbie, by, by, by Robbie Burnett, uh, who had just started Columbia's Modern Tibetan Studies program. Uh, and I guess I sort of ended up being one of the first students to sort of go through that, at least in part. And that, 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 that program included language courses, included, included a study of broad program in Lhasa and, and many other resources and opportunities. So in some ways, it really was Robbie that set me on the path that I sort of remain on today. And that's pretty, pretty cool, actually. I'm pretty, pretty excited about that. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you, you all have uh, these really interesting connections between each other. It's fascinating. I guess that also uh, is the reason why um, that it brought all of you together as the editors of this volume. And it's always fascinating to hear about um, our authors and also editors' background story coming into the field. Um, so before we actually go into the book, um, tell us a little bit about how this book project, Conflicting Memories, came to be. Sure. I think it was originally my idea. Uh, this is probably almost 10 years ago uh, when we first started thinking about it. And I'd recently received my, my PhD from Columbia and was starting to had a job and was starting to revise my dissertation into a book. And was thinking a lot about the sources that we rely on to talk about Tibet's recent past, especially the, the Maoist period. And I was fortunate in, in my case to have archival sources for my dissertation slash book with which to sort of rely on. Uh, but to fill in the story, you really overwhelmingly had to rely on secondary literature produced mainly in China through the Chinese state publishing apparatuses and, and so forth. And I think that's probably one of the reasons that so relatively little amount has been done on, on Tibet and other non-Han areas during, during the Maoist period because of this hesitancy to use these types of sources, which are rightly considered to be if not outright propaganda, then at least to be telling a very problematic and, and state-generated historical narrative. So probably in part because I wanted to validate for myself the use of some of this material, I was thinking a lot about what narratives these stories actually do tell, how and when and why, and, 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 and the, the, sort of the narrative shifts, where absences might lie, and, and what all of this can tell us. So I think in thinking about this, I, I approached Robbie um, with some of these thoughts, who I know very much longer and had, had been asking some of these similar questions, probably uh, maybe with different materials and maybe asking qu different questions in slightly different ways. Uh, and then I, I believe he, he approached Francoise and, and we formed a panel for the International Association of, of Tibetan Studies with the Mongol scholar Urdin Bulag uh, and many of the authors of this book. And so that's sort of the kernel of where the book you know, came from. The book is really, it's not the proceedings from that conference, but it is where I think the, 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 the you know, it was the embryo of, of we, what we have today. Thank you. Yeah. And Professor Barda, would you like, like to add something? Yeah, I was going to pick up on Berno's mention of uh, Uradin Bulag because he was a discussant for the original panel, but he was also, the as he, he's really, you know, I, I see him as the kind of godfather of, of intellectual thinking about ethnopolitics in China, he's really one of the great figures writing about that. And um, it, it, he um, was very influential in the way we thought about the panel. Originally, we wanted the panel and we wanted the book to be a study of all the major minority areas in, in Inner Asia, so sort of Northwest, the Tibetans, Mongol, Mongols, uh, and the Turkic peoples in Xinjiang. We wanted all those re revised histories to be part of this project. Um, and, and that's why we were so keen to work with him. And he gave us really important insights about how that question looked for him as a inner Mongolian, which is really different from the way it's seen uh, from the Tibetan perspective, because inner Mongolians were making communist and socialist history before the Communist Party in China 
even existed. Uh, and uh, it's a very important distinction that they're, they're not the younger brothers as uh, the Chinese like to sometimes present them. Um, so we had that perspective with us, but we weren't able to include that in the book. Uh, we had to limit, we just found that in order to go into this in any depth, we had to limit what we could cope with. But I think it's very important to put on record that this is a small part of what needs to be a much larger project. How do these three major uh, inner Asia areas now within China, how do they work with the histories they're given by the state and how do they try to adjust those, um, you know, add marginal comments or change them? Yeah, thank you so much for bringing that into our attention. Definitely, um, hopefully, you know, more edit volumes like this one uh, would come out in the future. And um, so this book looks at changes and continuities in historical writings about Tibet under Mao um, and the Chinese Communist Party uh, here on the CCP um, for short, produced after the death of Mao. And the introduction chapter gives us this overview of the history of Tibet CCP encounters in four different waves. Um, so briefly, please introduce these four different waves for our listeners who might not be very familiar with Sino-Tibetan relations in the 20th century. Um, Professor Barnard, would you like to take this question? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I, I, I looked at this as, I mean, the more we looked at this question, the more interesting it got. And in fact, we, we spent a lot of time discussing how to formulate it. You know, we knew that we wanted to look at the way a particular episode in, in the Chinese Tibetan history is being revised, is being talked about or being not revised. And we were pretty clear that the formative point is the beginning when the communists first encounter the Tibetans. Um, we could see that if you look at uh, communist history, Chinese state history, it's always, always talking about the initial encounter because that's what they celebrate uh, as liberation or as uh, a kind of great epochal moment. So that was what we chose to look at. But when we looked at that, what's the early moment? What is that encounter? It actually spreads itself into four different kinds of encounter which depend on where you are, in, in which Tibet part of Tibet you are in, and which class, and whether you're urban or rural. And those four waves are actually the first ones much earlier than most people realize. The Communist Party first encountered Tibetans in eastern Tibetan areas, north of Sichuan, uh, Gansa, uh, and Ngawa, they're called in Tibetan. Uh, in 1935, uh, 36, the Long March, when the stragglers from the, the, the Red Army were trying to escape from the Kuomintang and they went through Tibetan areas. And they report that in, 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 in the, the, their own histories as being a, a kind of celebration of um, a, a welcome from the Tibetans. But in fact, at the time, it's quite clear that the opposite happened and there was serious fighting and serious conflict. So that's the first wave. 1949 is the second wave when the, the party takes over China and then it sends the, 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 the army, the, the People's Liberation Army, to formally annex these Tibetan areas. Um, so, and that's quite important because that didn't involve a huge amount of fighting. Those armies came and they were very careful, they were very strongly instructed to be cautious and respectful of the culture. So most of the, that second wave is a relatively positive impression for many people, I think. And then the, but we then realized that most Tibetans in the countryside don't actually encounter a, a Chinese person, probably ever in history, 
let alone at that time, until the mid-1950s, if they're in the countryside, they probably wouldn't know much about China or Chinese people. And, and that changes when when policy switches, is, is what Benno has described in his book about Qinghai is so important, from being a kind of united front accommodationist approach to being a, a democratic reform approach when you impose radical reforms. That happens around 1955-56 uh, in, in the eastern Tibetan areas, 58 in, in Amdo, the northeast areas, and 59 in Lhasa. And so there you meet uh, the encounters with the hard edge of communism, the radicalism of communism, which is coercive. And then again, 1966, we could see that there's a, another kind of encounter uh, when the Cultural Revolution comes, which is which is a communism which doesn't want to just take your land and re reassign it, it and destroy the upper classes. It wants to destroy the culture, the traditional culture. So these were four different encounters. And what I think is important about them is that, roughly speaking, they're a progression from a, a kind of really quite careful, culturally respectful Communist Party to a, a more and more uh, assertive uh, proactive, uh, radical revolutionary party. So those were the four waves that, that we found coming up in the encounters that we found Tibetans uh, and Chinese talking about as their initial point of contact with, with the communists. Thank you, Professor. And these four waves, right, this history of Tibet CCP encounters um, has actually been significantly rewritten in the post-Mao era in these official state-sanctioned text, right? This is something that you remind us in the introduction chapter in the book. Um, however, as we will see in the Tibetan resources contained in this book, um, these historical revisions are also being contested. Uh, right? So bringing the title of the book, Conflicting Memories, into our consideration, uh, how do official Chinese historiography and Tibetan historiographies differ from and conflict with one another? Maybe I should jump in again. But sure, I hope, please. <laughs> hope the others will 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 uh, add to this. Um, actually, I think it's very important to, to point to a little distinction between conflicting memories and contesting memories. The word that we tend to reach for uh, often these days, the idea of the contest, because actually the conflict here is much more subtle and nuanced between the official and the unofficial when we look at tibetan versus chinese histories at least in what one can find in print um, and that's obviously because the, the 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 effect of authoritarian control limits what people will say but it, it's actually more than that so what we generally find i'm just going to sort of start the conversation here that Mike, Benno and Francoise will be able to go into much more subtle details. What we tend to find is that the Tibetan versions subtly change emphasis of the state version. If they're oral histories, that change of emphasis is much less subtle. It's much more obvious that an oral history here being something that is private, that is not, that is probably done anonymously, there you do see a, a very, very remarkable, very noticeable shift of focus, a refocalization of history. And that refocalization is from the state to the person or from the state to the culture or the religion. So the Tibetan historiographies, they don't stand up and say what an external nationalist or a binary view would say, this is wrong, this account is false, it wasn't a liberation. They don't 
go to that kind of issue. They, they can't really dare to probably. But also, I don't know that they're thinking about that. They're thinking about why is this story not about what I experienced? So roughly speaking, the first level of the conflicting memory is reinserting the Tibetan into the story. It's not necessarily overthrowing the state version, the state narrative. It's not exactly a counter-narrative, but it is a com often a completely different narrative in which a Tibetan, and sometimes a Chinese, is a, an actual player as an individual. Their, their experience starts to tell the history, but it doesn't come to the level that uh, usually of directly contesting. It refocuses and re-narrates uh, something from a different perspective. That's how I would roughly see it. And that makes it pretty different from what was happening in China, I think, uh, in, the, in the inland areas of China, where, where there's much more taking on the whole state narrative uh, and contesting it. In, in these versions, although people may be thinking that, they don't say that in print, and they don't always say it openly, even in oral interviews. And, and Professor Weiner, would you like to add something? Uh, sure. I just want to, I guess, reemphasize what, what Robbie was talking about. And when we think about Tibetan uh, narratives versus Chinese narratives, is that a lot of these, and this may be obvious, maybe it's not, a lot of these Tibetan narratives appear in Chinese sources, for lack of a better word. Uh, so this could be, um, uh, you know, a, a biography or a, a short sort of a memorial uh, written, published in, in, in Chinese, uh, published by a Chinese uh, a publishing house, and sort of written or, or uh, you know, or, or, or orally um, expressed by, by a Tibetan, um, in which, they, again, they reassert themselves in this, uh, this narrative of the early, in this case, the early 1950s quite often. And sort of, uh, as, as Robbie was saying, um, rather than saying that, um, you know, the, the Chinese state came and 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 made us do something, or, or or helped us do something. They 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 assert themselves into that narrative. So you see a lot of Tibetans talking about the work they did, for instance, in uh, negotiating uh, grassland disputes between different Tibetan groups, uh, or the importance of monastic leaders and 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 um, institutions. So just to sort of again reinforce that, uh, you see these in subtle ways within the Chinese sources as well as sort of so-called Tibetan sources if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you for adding that. And um, I guess considering um, these translated sources containing this volume and their larger implications, right, for the academic study of modern Tibet, uh, Professor Hoban, if I can pick your ranks a, a bit, uh, what are some of the implications of these conflicting memories and historiographies for Sino-Tibetan relations, but also for our fields of Tibetan studies and China studies? Uh, yeah, I will focus more on the field of uh, Thai, uh, Tibetan and China studies more than the Sino-Tibetan relations, but maybe my esteemed colleagues can add up on what I will be saying. So what I want to say is that to some extent, I guess one of our aims was to give visibility to sometimes private, hardly noticeable or hearable, and sometimes whispered accounts of the yet-to-be-written history of these um, immensely traumatic and violent years of, of clashing between two radically different worldviews and social systems. So I take the word to whisper from Orlando Fitch's study of private life in Stalin Russia. His book is called Whisperers, and uh, 
I think it applies well to Maoist China too, and even more to Maoist Tibet, because he claims that in Stalinist Russia, everyone was, and to some extent, uh, was no sorry, was afraid of expressing intimate private thoughts and feelings in public. So it's the, the case for um, a number of um, of Tibetans today about uh, when they talk about the fifties. Um, insofar as their narratives do not fit the mandatory state-led grand narrative. But, and as Beno has just said, more surprisingly, we wanted to bring the reader's attention to so far neglected but publicly available state-sanctioned narratives that bring more nuance into how the Tibetan side and also the Chinese side have experienced and chosen to narrate the so-called liberation and the Maoist years. And another of... another. Uh, part of our aims was to bring together scholars who work on Chinese language and Tibetan language primary sources. Um, we find, at least I find, that specialists of contemporary China are usually not very concerned by what they perceive as belong to a periphery area, but which in fact is a crucial area in understanding, of course, the geographical limitations, but also political uh, limitations and building of the current P- P- PRC. So we hope we we were hoping in making room uh, to these um, Chinese. Uh, w- sorry, we were hoping uh, to make room in the Chinese studies sphere about the still vexed and very under researched question of Tibet's takeover. Thank you, thank you. Um, so let's talk about. Uh, a little bit about the wealth of translated primary materials contained in this volume, a little bit. Um, and they, they're quite diverse, too. So we have official documents um, from the government. We have memoirs. We have histories, biographies, fiction, films, and also all kinds of oral narratives. Um, so how were these sources selected and curated uh, in this volume? So as the editors of the all volume, uh, Professor Weiner, would you like to say something. Sure. And, and my, my colleagues can jump in um, as I see fit. Um, but I think we're all really proud of this, this aspect of the book that we were able to bring these, these documents, these sources, um, you know, in translation to, you know, wider audiences or to an audience for the first time in some cases, because there just isn't that many, as, as someone who teaches uh, this period, both to, in Chinese history classes and in t- Tibetan history classes, there just isn't that many primary sources available, um, you know, for the post-1949 period, for the Maoist period. So we do include all these different types of, of sources. Um, I think there's 15 of them in, in all. Um, and each is important, I think, in its own right, but they're not just sort of picked at random or because we feel like the particular story is, is that important in and of itself. But they're each examples of the sources or type of sources that we actually analyze in our chapters. Uh, so on the one hand, we wanted to make available primary sources in translation um, for use in the classroom or wherever else they might be, be used, but also we wanted to demonstrate how they might be used, how they might be usefully read, um, even those that are produced by the state, as, as Francoise mentions, or that appear to be sort of religious hagiographies and, and might not be sort of seem esoteric to, to, to outside readers. Um, and I, I'll just add that, um, you know, piggybacking off of what Francoise uh, was saying, I, I think it's absolutely imperative that those of us who teach about China include sources and stories and, 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 and time and energies and materials on what they might think of as being peripheral region, regions. Um, the 120 million people in China today that are not classified as Han Chinese 
and the 60% of the land mass that the state itself uh, acknowledges is, uh, you know, historically uh, non-Chinese regions, non-ethnically Chinese regions. Um, because the, the, you know, how ethnic minorities became ethnic minorities in a Han-dominated nation state really is not a question of political, of peripheral importance, as I think it's sometime uh, is, is sort of suggested by the absence of this conversation. But it's really a key question. One of the key questions of modern Chinese history, as is demonstrated, for instance, by the, the, the crisis we see in Xinjiang today, it's also still one of the really unresolved consequences of, of, of empire and the transition to nation states. So our hope really is that the book provides a tool for talking and thinking about these issues in the classroom and, and beyond. Yes, thank you. I was I was going to ask you about a question about um, how you would imagine this book to be taught in the classroom. So thank you for answering that. And Professor Barnett, would you like to add something? Yeah, um, you know, Benno has given a warning to the field, you know, that not to think of uh, the areas on the on the edges of the China uh, uh, lowland areas as being peripheral or insignificant. But I think that I want to make that warning in a way or that recommendation in terms of texts, the kind of texts we've included in many cases are texts that appear to be peripheral. They appear to be insignificant, almost meaningless uh, to, to a casual reader. For example, you know, read the newspaper in Lhasa every day, Communist Party official organs. You, you don't really see anything that you would expect to be very meaningful if you're a casual reader. And that's true of a lot of these texts. Uh, you know, I've put in scripts from films that are just look like propaganda, really. Um, we've put in uh, uh, accounts of biographies from retired Chinese officials. They look like propaganda themselves. But our book is really designed to say, in the context of the colonial regime, where access is restricted, almost impossible for outsiders and very limited even for local people, uh, in terms of travel and movement and so on, it, you, you have to learn to read texts in a different way. You have to read a text for minimal indications that may be hidden or may be only available to the informed reader uh, to find out what is really going on in that text. And uh, the, uh, a lot of the essays, as Benno said, a lot of the papers, are, are the chapters in our book, are explications of how to read those texts. I'll give maybe, uh, you know, in the example of the Chinese officials th that Bianca Holloman talks about, very interesting. It's, it looks like a standard kind of praise for the party's actions in, in Tibet in the early years, but actually he includes indications of conflict and difficulty and the use of violence, which are not admitted in the standard uh, recitations of that history. So, but you wouldn't know that if you didn't know that history. And then if you look at the, some other texts we put in, which I put in from the Panchen Lama, the great Tibetan figures who were the, really the, 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 the proxies for China in Tibet in the 1950s, the Panchen Lama, Punso Wangyal, the first Tibetan major Communist Party leader, um, and Ngapa Namwanjimi, who was governor of Tibet after the Dalai Lama fled. Um, they all left texts and speeches which very often appear to be complete endorsements of China's claims to Tibet. But if you look at them carefully, especially if you see internal texts, and one of these is internal, you, you see them saying certain claims in the Chinese narrative are just not sustainable. They're just not correct. And uh, for example, one the simple example is China claims that Tibet has been uh, part of China 
It used to claim that since the 18th or since the 13th century, but now it's suddenly claiming it from you know sixth, seventh, eighth century or something. But Vinyapa uh, shows clearly in his text that it wasn't really part of China during the Ming Dynasty, let alone earlier. So we we can see these kind of small details, much smaller than that, much finer than that. Um, uh, like the Panchalama gives a speech talking about Mayan culture, the Maya people, um, and saying how that civilization was destroyed. He appears to be hinting that the culture of Chinese communism could actually uh, be like other cultures that have disappeared, other civilizations that have gone. So, that, you know, there are many kind of coded things in there that, that we think are worth uh, encouraging people to look at more carefully and to read with the kind of reading skill you need uh, to look at these kind of texts. Thank you. Yeah. And Professor Hoban, would you like to add something? Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, just a s small addition. Um, Dr. Lamakyap uh, published a few years back a study on contemporary Tibetan literature, which which bears a title which I think we can quote here. It's called The Inescapable Nation. I think whatever, a, a lot of stuff that we get to read, at least in Tibetan, um, cannot... Uh, get away from the question of what what is Tibet, you know, in today's PRC? What is to be Tibetan? How can, you know, we cannot, they cannot avoid discussing it, talking about it without, um, um, but they, sorry, but they have to, to do it in a way, as uh, Robbie says, that is discreet or subtle or quiet enough so that it does not attract attention but we we see it it's 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 an obsession or it's a it's a recurring reflection you know what is it to be in how can we be tibetans today what has happened to us in the since the 50s or even before so the inescapability of the of the you know of what is tibet and what was what it was and what is now um shows in the texts so this is why we came up with a wealth of translations um, of different texts that came from very diverse background to uh, de depending on what our specialty was. So we had, you know, anthropologists, we have historians, we have specialists of religious studies, we have film specialists. And I think whenever we put our hands on a Tibetan text that reflects upon what it means to be Tibetan today in the PRC, and of course, when it deals with history, then we find, as Robbie said, uh, a wealth of material and we wanted to bring it to the attention of the readers. And I wanted to jump in there and add uh, a special pointer for uh, one person who we worked with who uh, we, we, most of us have never met, who was a Tibetan who, we've call, who calls himself Ugen Nima, not his real name, who, who published online a remarkable collection of oral testimonies that he'd collected in northeastern Tibet called Living and Dying in Modern Tibet. And um, though we have taken, I think, four or five uh, sections from his or remarkable oral histories that he did secretly with people there, uh, anonymously. And that, that's our, he's really our Tibetan, inside Tibetan co-editor, who we can't give a real name to. And much later on in the process, I discovered actually that I know him quite, quite, quite well. I, I didn't realize initially. But his work as a collector of oral narratives is a way, it's the kind of linchpin, the base of the book, because everything that's published officially, as we've been describing, has to be self-censored, restrained, restricted, cautious, 
or it's an early stage where people are just trying to recenter narratives. But in the oral interviews that he does, you start to see really the clarity of the distance between the official narrative and the personal experience. People describing what it was like living in the Cultural Revolution for, for years under intense suspicion and persecution. People describing actually not just communist attacks, but attacks from the Tibetan government army in the 1930s, which was also very aggressive, uh, but didn't try to change the culture of those Tibetans, of course. So th th I think that oral history is the kind of counterpart to the published public, semi-public histories. And that's true not just of Mima, but other oral, um, secret oral interviews that have been done anonymously uh, by a, a writer called Chamda Rinsang, who I think went to prison afterwards. So I want to put that forward as that's kind of the core core text where we can see that there really is a big difference between the Chinese and the Tibetan or the, the state and the popular experience. Thank you, Professor. Yeah, that's a really important point to make. We do have these sources in the book, and, and uh, I personally feel really, really grateful for these anonymous contributors uh, putting forth these um, really valuable sources that we probably won't be able to access otherwise. So thank you for bringing that in. Um, and so going into the, the, the chapters of the book, um, let's do a kind of unconventional move by going to the end of the book a little bit first, because when people think of Tibet, most would probably associate the place with Buddhism or the Dalai Lama, um, the kinds of voices that we often hear and think of um, in pop culture, for example. Um, so let's maybe begin with the fifth and final chapter of the book for first. Um, this part of the book turns to religious elites, uh, especially Tibetan Buddhist leaders, and also how they remember the Mao decades in the post-Mao era. Uh, so scholars like Nicole Wellock, Maria Turek, and Jeffrey Barstow's chapter all focus on religious figures who had experienced imprisonment or forced labor during the Mao eras? Um, and how do these inv individuals recall their lives in the Mao eras? And how do these religious rememberings differ from, let's say, secular ones? Uh, so Professor Wabin, would you like to take on this question? Um, yes, thank you. Um, for some of the, so we have three articles dealing with how Buddhist clerics uh, recall or, uh, yeah, recall their, their past or or how their disciples recall um, the way these clerics or important cultural persons uh, uh, met with the state violence. So if we focus on the high lamas, uh, we have, of course, to re remind uh, readers that and listeners that uh, high lamas and, were among the primary targets of the Maoist fury. And as a consequence, they suffered immensely for most of them. Uh, some of them survived. It was not the case for all of them. But those who survived uh, sometimes left uh, autobiographies or their disciples left uh, biographies. And they had to live inside the system during and after the wave of Maoism. And the way they managed to recount these uh, recount these years is not by eschewing, eschewing, sorry, um, the recalling of the violence and the conflicts. I mean, avoiding you know, the violence and the conflict or telling about them, but by making sense of them through a Buddhist, what I call Buddhist reading grid. Uh, 
So in the Buddhist worldview, suffering is the inherent stuff, we can say, of any existence. Uh, and these lamas or their disciples claim that through uh, such traumatic life events, uh, these religious people were able to actually observe and uh, perform an attitude towards suffering, which is absolutely typical of an accomplished uh, Buddhist practitioner. So um, entering for them, entering suffering, um, this is what we get through their reading, we understand through their reading, entering suffering helped them cleanse their negative karma and strengthen their practice of compassion and endurance. And maybe I can quote here what Nicole Willock writes in her article. She says that these years of being confronted with state violence were, quote, opportunities for spiritual advancement. And a similar tactic, uh, unquote, a similar tactic is at work in the narration of the life story of another of um, another Buddhist lama from Kham. Uh, this is in the article by Maria Turek. And uh, she shows that um, his life and times throughout the Maoist years, at least the way it is recalled later in his life story, is full of magic, secrecy, secrecy, sorry, and mystical visions. Then the third article by Jeff Barstow is... Uh, uh, the case uh, tells the case of a Tibetan painter, uh, Tangla Tsewang, who assisted, in fact, he was a Buddhist, you know, he, he, he was a Tanka painter, and he assisted, in fact, communist cadres during the Maoist years. And Barstow, Je uh, Jeff Barstow shows that his uh, biographer has shaped, shaped his life narration also within the frame of a Buddhist grid. So uh, according to his disciple, Tangla Tsewang's life and behavior during the Cultural Revolution uh, is to be interpreted more subtly as having an ulterior motive, um, a Buddhist one, what Buddhists, uh, Tibetan Buddhists call the uh, using, resorting to skillful means, which is typical of an advanced practitioner. Saving Buddhism in Tibet um, was in fact what was at stake behind the appar apparent or uh, yeah, the apparent com compliance uh, with orders uh, given by the uh, communist authorities or by, you know, we could say collaborating, but I don't think it's a proper term uh, with them. Uh, so, um, so reading this through a Buddhism prism uh, saves also, of course, saves Tsangla Tsewang's life in a way. Uh, showing that he's not the one whom outsiders might have thought he was. Uh, but on the other hand, it makes this life story palatable also to communist authority because he did comply and this is not negated in the in the book. So you see, this is how our contributors have shown how uh, Tibetan writers or authors have been able to navigate and interpret, reinterpret, uh, um, let's say, a complicated... Uh, often a difficult past through a, Tibet, a Tibetan and here in this specific uh, case, a Buddhist worldview. World yeah, thank you for going into details with the chapters in this part. And uh, just to remind our listeners, uh, we've actually just recorded recently a podcast episode on Nicole Willock's uh, new book, Lineages of the Literary, where she goes into detail more of the literary writings of Tibetan Buddhist leaders in the Mao era, which I think many of our listeners would find um, interesting and helpful. Uh, so thank you for that. And part one of the book um, goes into these official 
retellings and memories of Tibet, quote unquote, liberation by the uh, the People's Liberation Army. And Professor Barnett and Professor Weiner both have chapters in this section. Uh, first, maybe let's go to Professor Weiner's chapter, which examines a specific genre of state-published official memories uh, known in Chinese as wenshiziliao, or literally translated as cultural and historical materials. And um, Alice Traverse's chapter also deals with the genre of text. Um, so how do these serialized state-sanctioned memory projects remember Tibet's quote-unquote liberation? Yeah, thanks. Um... I'll, I'll try to be brief, but a little bit of sort of background is that, you know, sort of beginning in the early 1980s or so and accelerating really through the, the 1990s into the, the new millennia, but sort of running out, running its course uh, by then was an incredible boom in writing and publishing in China about the recent past. Uh, this included all sorts of things like local gazetteers and party histories, regional histories, biographies and autobiographies, such as the one that Becca Horleman uh talks about, or that, that Robbie described Bianca Torlumen's uh, chapter a little bit, as well as these uh, Wenchersiliao, or these cultural and historical materials. And all of this was promoted by Deng Xiaoping's uh, regime as part of its efforts to sort of reinforce its legitimacy, as well as the legitimacy of the, of the party itself, after the chaos of the Cultural Revolution, um, and their infighting with their, their, their sort of rivals for, for, um, for party control. Speaking specifically about Tibetan region, regions, but probably it applies more generally as well, the, the job of writing many of these histories was often given to these United Front figures from the 1950s that Robbie sort of mentioned before. These would be Han intellectuals and bureaucrats that were involved in the initial stages of, of China's control over Tibetan regions, uh, as well as um, religious and secular leaders, Tibetan as well as from other uh, ethnic groups. Um, from the pre-liberation period. And all of these people, both these groups were often toppled in 1958 or soon after in the Amdo region, at least, and, and earlier in, in, in the uh, area of Kham and, and later in central Tibet. Um, this type of publication was actually in the, often sponsored by leading party or army figures of that generation, of the liberation generation in 1950s. So in Qinghai, for instance, a man like a man named Ma Wanli is often behind them, or in Central Tibet, General Yin Fa Tang's hand can often be seen. And what they're doing in part is that they're rehabilitating their own individual and cohort legacies as founders of New China by championing this early 1950s United French approach uh, to rule over, over non-Han areas which stressed national unity and economic development really above all else and, you know, sort of promoted this accommodationist approach. And not coincidentally, this is also the goals of the post-Mao reformist regime. So you have this sort of, uh, uh, sort of, how should I put it? They sort of match one another and you can talk about the past while also maybe talking a little bit about the present. So really a common narrative emerges about the correctness of the policies of accommodation and consensus building made between the party and Tibetan elites in the 1950s through these types of publications. Um, now, Alice, Alice Travers and I both write about Wenshiz Liao, as, as you mentioned, she about central Tibet and me for the Qinghai or the Amdo region. Uh, these are serialized state-directed anthologies of sorts, which began actually in 1959 when Zhou Enlai asked that personal experiences of the pre-1949 period be collected essentially to show the people's struggle for liberation to that point and the leadership of the party in making that happen. 
This was halted in, during the Cultural Revolution and started up again in earnest afterwards. Uh, and then afterwards, the, the contents would include not just up to 1949, but uh, the early period of, of, of Chinese rule in these regions. Um, these were meant, according to Premier Zhou and others, to reflect what the authors personally experienced, what they personally saw, and that what they personally heard. And in that sense, they were meant to be, uh, I guess, more authentic than, say, an academic study. And I think they even referred to them at the time as living material of blood and flesh. Um, you know, they were, they, they were and they are hardly independent productions, of course. They're overseen by the state as a way to tell certain stories and to re reinforce certain narratives. And I think because of that, serious scholars, both inside and outside of China until recently, really were uh, hesitant to, to use them. But what else, and I argue in, in, in similar but slightly different ways, uh, we, we argue for their, for their importance, uh, for the things that they do say, uh, for the small, um, for instance, we argue that their serialized nature actually means uh, that you can trace how the state's use of history changes over time to meet the needs of different regimes and different historical moments, such as the early uh, reform period. Their multi-authorship uh, also means that they often have very nuanced and subtle challenges to the master narrative that can sometimes be detected within them, sort of as Robbie was talking about before. But what's really fascinating about the the Winters of the Hour to me um, is that there is a massive silence in them. In that in the Qinghai collection, they really never detail the 1958 rebellion, the Great Leap Forward, or the Cultural Revolution. Uh, so essentially they, they they skip two decades and they do it almost completely silently. Maybe there'll be a brief sentence alluding to some mistakes committed under ultra-leftist pressures, which is really code for arrest. It's code for torture, sometimes for the killing of the protagonists. So these are stories that make a case for national unity. They make a case for integration, that it completely allied the tremendous state violence uh, and the personal experiences and the communal experiences that Tibetans and other communities faced during this time. So you have this deafening silence within them. Uh, which I think is, is absolutely striking when, when you begin to read them. Uh, so yeah, I'll stop there. There's probably more I could say. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Thank you. Yeah. And and these Wen Shi can be found also on, on regions outside of Tibet too, like for Inner Mongolia. Uh, I also have been working on with a few of them, um, Manchuria and so on and so forth. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and Bianca Hordman's chapter turns to these unofficial Memoirs. Um, so, how are these compared to the one Shi Zilei? Uh, I mean, I, I guess I could take a quick stab at that. I mean, you know, Robbie already talked about her, her chapter a little bit, but these autobiographies and these biographies, in some ways, are part of the same sort of uh, uh, effort to reinstate the the uh, importance of the United Front and this this early period of accommodation. Um, so, in this case, Bianca writes about a man, or she she uses the autobiography of a man named Wang Yuying who was a member of the party work group that was sent into the Golok region uh, soon after 1949. And Golok is one of the most remote regions of, of, of Qinghai, certainly from the state's perspective. Uh, Golok people like to say that 
Godok had never been conquered by an outside force until then. Um, and, and the story that, that Wong tells on the surface is very much the, the party's master narrative um, that the Golok people welcomed and sought out liberation uh, because they freed the Golok people uh, from the uh, exploitation and the violence of the previous warlord regime of, of, of Ma Bufeng um, in, in Qinghai. Uh, but what Bianca, I think, shows is that the Golok leaders uh, were both politically quite acute. Uh, they were wary of the CCP's overtures. Uh, they had a long experience dealing with, with different factions, different groups of Tibetans as well as Chinese uh, uh, powers. Um, and that if, if, for any, if, if, if anything, for historical reasons, they preferred to be part of Sichuan rather than, than, than Qinghai. And they only came to participate in the new government at the CCP's pointed insistence. In other words, uh, they had no choice. As Robbie mentioned, there was much more contestation and even violence than the massive narrative suggests. Um, so it's an example of how these autobiographies can really be, uh, I think, read in ways to locate new stories, um, despite the fact that they, on the surface, they they, they follow a a, a well, relatively well-tread narrative that we've seen over and over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. And speaking about um, on the topic of reading between the lines and, and and reading strategies when it comes to these texts, part two of the book, uh, rereading the past stories told by documents. Uh, here we have two chapters by Alex Raymond and Chun Searing that contemplate from the perspective of contemporary scholars, right? How earlier historical documents about the Chinese-Tibetan encounters can be or have been reread. Um, so what are these documents under investigation here in the chapter and what are the rereading suggested by the two scholars? Uh, so Professor Barnett, would you like to take on this question? Sure. Well, you know, when we were working through the book, it, it gradually became clear, sort of stunningly clear, that nothing in the book was really about professional historians writing in China or in Tibet. And I think that's because professional historians, official historians, people writing history books, can't say very much at all on a subject like Tibet. It's not like the Chinese in China where they might be able to find some space. Uh, If you're writing about Tibet or Xinjiang or Probably Mongolia in Mongolia, you, you, your 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 space for maneuver is is almost completely fixed. There are things that those professional historians do say, but they're very small deviations from the the mainstream line. For example, Dunkar Lobsang Trinley, a very important figure in the eighties, wrote a book in which he said that the nineteen fifty nine, what the Chinese called the rebellion of Tibetans uh, in central Tibet against China, he said it was a middle strata event, whereas the official narrative said it was upper strata, aristocrats. So you do see some differences. And and I've talked with people writing those books in, in Tibet, editors of them, uh, who've described other tiny changes from the official narrative, but they're very small and very hard to spot with, without expertise or guidance. So we don't really have chapters uh, discussing that kind of formal historiography. So in this section, we have Outsiders, Alex Raymond, who, who works in the Lebanon, trained in France, and a uh, sinologist, and Chung Sering, who's a Tibetan from Tibet, who left and uh, lives in, now in Australia. Um, they tell us really what a historiographer, what a historian would do if they were able to look at early texts, at primary documents, uh, without the restrictions that the state has if you're inside Tibet. And Alex Raymond does this very remarkable 
thing of, of looking at the actual documents that were released by the Communist Party internally, really, or semi-internally, official documents, archival documents, uh, describing the preparations for what we might call the annexation of Tibet in 1950, when the PLA uh, had to move into central Tibet to take it over. The narrative of that event is uh, very fixed, very very uh, solid in the state version, which is uh, the, the PLA, uh, once it had overcome the local Tibetan army in the first battle, uh, did not advance and would not, would not have advanced because it wanted to have a peaceful liberation. It waited for the Tibetans to agree to terms for surrender. And that's how almost all historians everywhere have represented that history. Alex Raymore shows that if you look at the initial documents at the time, they show that the army, uh, even though it was able to defeat the Tibetan army, the Chinese army had run out of food supplies. It, it didn't have equipment to move forward into Tibet. It would, they would have died in their hundreds and maybe thousands if they tried. They relied on Stalin sending uh, planes to drop food and so on. Uh, th th their reasons for not pushing into Tibet for a full-scale invasion were, were probably, he argues, not to do with generosity or a wish for peace. Uh, it, it was more uh, logistical limitations. They couldn't do it. Now, whether we take that, whether we all follow that view or not, it, it, it's a reminder that history and historical narratives are written by the people who make that history at the time. So he's showing that in the first weeks or days or months of those events, already a narrative had developed, which becomes a state-fixed narrative. So that's an important kind of interpretation that can't be done inside Tibet very easily, but he could show us how to do it outside. And Chung Sering shows us another kind of use of a discussion, which is looking at the documents about Ngapa Ngawang Chigmi, who I mentioned earlier was the one Tibetan aristocrat official who stayed in Tibet after 59 and was made the proxy governor of Tibet. Chung uh, Sang says that the kind of common view in recent years in exile of him as a traitor, which was really promoted by that film, uh, the, uh, the Seven Years in Tibet film, uh, it presented him in that way. That That's really a very recent narrative. If you look back to the text of what Tibetans were saying about him, both inside Tibet and outside Tibet, in the 50s and in the 60s and onwards, they, they were much more aware of the, the difficulties of his situation, the, 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 the efforts he made to prevent the Chinese from destroying the culture, even though he had to accept political rule. So Chung Sering shows a much more nuanced view of, of current opinions and current narratives about that particular Tibetan leader. So these are, this is what you can call, you know, uh, kind of principled historiography, historiography based on analyzing the sources, might be wrong, might be right, but it's, it's a free effort of inquiry, which we don't see people really being able to do very much inside Tibet, certainly not among professional historians. Thank you. Yes, these these two chapters are really fascinating to read uh, for, for historians and graduate students who are interested in doing history about modern Tibet. Um, and moving on in part three, we have oral Rememberings, oral histories um, that sort of remember the encounters um, between the between Tibet and the CCP during the late 1950s and 1960s, a particularly violent era marked by the suppression of the Amdo Rebellion in 1958, for example, and the Cultural Revolution that lasted for 10 years. 
Um, so here, Dasa Mortensen's chapter, for example, shows us a case of historical amnesia uh, in the region specific of Gautang, while other scholars like Charlene Mackley and two Tibetan local contributors, transcription of an oral interview shows us a lot of really interesting non-verbal things like hesitation, repetitions, and silence. All right, so in these oral historical uh, oral histories about life under Mao, uh, what kind of things were being spoken about and recalled? And also, on the other hand, what kind of things are silenced and forgotten? Uh, Professor Robin, would you like to take on this one? Well, there's, uh, you're absolutely right. The the the, the article, uh, Charlene um, Marclay's and uh, Toyota Drup's article on, uh, on the, based upon the interview is a very original contribution to our volume and maybe to history making or history historiography in general because it used linguistics um, to read finely through uh, an interview and, as you say, show us you know, how to decode, decipher, and focus on silences, repetitions, hesitations, uh, which do require a fine uh, deciphering or or decoding. Um, Here, I think uh, they point uh, maybe not so much, in that case, maybe not so much to uh, things that cannot be told because there's the grand state narrative that prevents uh, uh, Tibetan voices from being heard and Tibetan experience from being shared if it does not fit with the grand narrative. Here in that specific case, it's more about hesitation, at about confessing uh, personal participation and implication in the Maoist violence and the guilt that follows. Um, uh, the silence means doesn't mean that uh, this guilt uh, is forgotten. It, it just shows a basic, maybe human psychological phenomenon that you, it's hard to deal with uh, with this guilt. Um, um, I think I will leave maybe the floor to my colleagues to talk about Dasha Mortensen's article. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll talk about Dasha's article, uh, which is which is really a great great uh, contribution. I actually teach this article in my classes quite often because I think it really is uh, it's something that's very digestible to, to students. Um, she shows a series of erasures, essentially, um, of uh, in the in the region that Tibetans know as uh, known as Gyaltong, in the far uh, southeast of Tibet in Yunnan province. Um, and in particular, she shows the destruction of Songsaling Monastery, the main monastery there. Um, and, and she's using oral and written sources uh, to st- describe the physical destruction of this monastery uh, by local Tibetans and other members of the community during the Cultural Revolution, as well as attacks on religious figures, including the uh, the abbot of the monastery, I believe, and other markers of the old society uh, during this very you know uh, tumultuous, destructive uh, moment. But then she shows how um, memory of that violence is also purposely as- obscured in the post-Mao period. Uh, by the state on one hand, but also within local Tibetan communities sometimes, because these local Tibetans have to deal with both the trauma of the violence itself that occurred, but also uh, with the guilt of Tibetan participation in that violence, um, and something that is you know rarely openly discussed officially, but also not not discussed within Tibetan communities quite quite often. Uh, so something a, a little bit similar to what Francoise was just referring to, you get this double silence essentially. And then a third silence when Gyaltong, or Zhongdian as it used to be known in Chinese, 
gets officially renamed or redubbed as Shangri-La by the state, I think around 2000, in a successful strategy, it seems, to drive up tourism uh, in the region. So Gyaltan or, or Shangri-La gets pitched as this harmonious, distant, but accessible uh, uh, Tibetan destination, I think she calls it. And the monastery itself is rebuilt as a tourist destination, uh, destination largely stripped of its, of its previous religious functions for the community, as well as the living memory of what happened to it is, is also, uh, if not forgetting, forgotten, it's, 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 it's silence. It's not allowed to be part of that, um, of that portrait of this, of this uh, uh, important institution. And then finally, there's a fourth erasure, uh, I think in around 2014, when the old town itself gets destroyed by fire uh, and then gets rebuilt to serve essentially for Han tourism as well. So she investigates several levels of, of historical erasure quite effectively, I think, using using oral sources as well as as, as written uh, uh, documents. Thank you, and I think guilt also plays a big part in that chapter, which is a fascinating perspective to explore. Uh, Professor Barnett. Yeah, I was just going to add that where we're talking there about the oral history or the oral remembering, um, I want to reinsert what we talked about earlier the work of Ugin Nima, this pseudonymous collector of oral histories, and Shandorinsan, um, and another local Tibetan um, who collected oral histories. Those are the trauma accounts that, that, that we put into that section. Those are primary documents, which in a way everybody should read. But as I said, they're very disturbing to read what these people went through in the 50s and 60s uh, and 70s. And we have to we see immediately from that that these people Unlike the people Dasa Mortensen's talking about, these people in the other areas, they don't really have a notion of the Cultural Revolution as being 1966 to 76, which was the very convenient framing that was, is used by the Chinese state to, to, to bracket the Cultural Revolution. Their experience of a Cultural Revolution is really a continuum of massive cultural, social, personal violence uh, from 1950s onwards till mid late 70s so those texts i think are very important but as i say they don't really tackle the claims of legitimacy they don't attack the communist party as such they just describe the experience of what benno described earlier the the elided period the the aporia the omitted the silent period that doesn't really appear in the state narrative thank you thank you for adding that yes again um these Primary sources translated expertly, containing the in the volume, are really really great resources to for our students, right, to get to know about this period a bit more. Um, turning to the topic of cultural productions uh, during the Mao era, um, I guess created in the post Mao period, um, Professor Barnett's chapter turns to sources like films and television dramas, um, as well as unofficial memoirs. Uh, so how do these media sources narrate Tibet's initial encounters with the CCP, but also maybe um, more in general? Well, I, I'm very fascinated by by pleasure, really, as many of us are. And I'm very, I'm really interested in kind of historical narratives or any other kind of narratives that is packaged in the form of entertainment that's meant to be enjoyable. And as I'm sure everyone knows now, the party, the propaganda, Bureau is very, very insistent now that films and dramas and other ways of passing on propaganda messages should be enjoyable, should be entertaining. And that's what we're seeing as they learn in the Chinese film industry and more and more from 
Hollywood and so on. Um, so I was very interested to see what would happen to history if we looked at it there. And I, I um, just, you know, I've been looking at Tibetan film for quite a long time, and I, I kind of realised when we were doing this project that of I don't know what it is, a hundred or two hundred films about Tibet or TV dramas about Tibet made in China um, in the last 50, 60, 70 years, actually half of them, almost exactly half, are about the initial encounter. They are celebrations and they are all celebrations of the Communist Party arriving in a Tibetan area and uh, liberating people and being welcomed eventually. Um, so I thought, well, that's interesting. Let me see how those accounts have changed over the 70 years. They will, they will basically tell exactly the same story, but has that story changed? And I spent months watching these films and TV dramas. It was incredibly good fun, but it was incredibly hard to write about because the more I looked at them, the less I could find had changed. I mean, everything had changed on the surface. You had these beautiful, glossy TV shows about semi-naked Kampo warriors, you know, fighting the Japanese and, you know, Tibetans uh, struggling with uh, Christian missionaries and you know, Tibetans fighting the British. And, uh, very, very glossy Hollywood type epics that were being made, especially in the 80s and 90s. But actually, the, the themes, the more I looked at them, the themes were almost exactly the same as the themes of films made in the Maoist era in the in, in the 60s, even in the 50s. Very little had changed. Uh, it's still about the backwardness of the Tibetan, uh, the, the awfulness of uh, the society, the, the uh, depravity of the aristocrats, and the, the benevolence of the party. Very, very old themes that we're very familiar with from the Maoist films. But what had changed was um, none of those themes, really. What had changed was that they now get told through a language of affect. They get told through a vehicle of sentiment. They're, they're subjectivized so that the story takes you into the emotional life of a central character. And that central character is an individual. They're, they're different from other individuals. Whereas in the Maoist film, you don't really care about affect. And, uh, uh, it's subjective. Reality isn't important. An individual isn't really important. An individual in a Maoist era film represents a collective category, the working class, the feudal oppressor, the aristocrat. But in the modern films after the death of Mao, um, in the 80s and onwards, uh, they're individuals who have individual lives. And we get taken into love affairs. That's the key issue is the love affair between the Tibetan and Chinese. That's the key theme. That keeps coming up, and we take it. We, we are we are taken into their emotions, but the actual narrative that is being told is almost unchanged from the fifties, and it's a very very bizarre experience to watch film after film, TV drama after TV drama, and say, "What is the actual story they're telling me? What's the message?" And to find that actually it hasn't really changed, because when you talk to the directors, not many of those, not all of them, but many of them they feel they're telling something completely new and completely benevolent to Tibetans because they're showing them as individuals with emotional lives. But actually, they're still showing them in the same framework as in the past. So that's really uh, what my chapter is about. There are some uh, Chinese writers writing in television who I, I've worked with, actually, in Tibet, 
who are, are very different, but they're a very, very small minority, um, and they don't get a, uh, a big slice of the cake in terms of what they can do or work with. So, yeah, my, I found it very sad, actually, writing that chapter. Well, that was fun to do. It was very sad to realize the themes are still basically the same about a backward people that needs to be shown welcoming and advanced people arriving. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating, your chapter, and it kind of makes you think why these TV shows and movies coming out just keeps drilling that moment into people's memories, right? The public's memories, um, which is really fascinating. Um, and on another genre of cultural productions, literary retellings of history is sort of the theme of part four of the book. Here we have uh, Professor Hobbins' chapter reminding us that literary writing has become an important form used by Tibetans to discuss painful historical episodes, and that the choice of fiction as a vehicle is more of a necessity than an option. Uh, I found this uh, um, argument really, really fascinating. And uh, Xenia de Hearing's chapter also discussed how the literary form was used to strategically discuss the past and to avoid political repercussions at the same time. Um, so how has the genre of fiction been used by Tibetan authors to articulate the years under Mao? And what are the specific kind of literary strategies used here? Professor Robin, if I can um, get you to answer this one. Yes, thank you. Um, well, um, from the very beginning of what we call modern or contemporary, sorry, Tibetan literature that began... Uh, to uh, to appear in the nineteen in early nineteen eighties, even very late nineteen seventies, cultural revolution was allowed uh, to be tackled because it was an official national policy. So we what we see is uh, the Bard Dumpa by uh, Tondrup Gel, one of the most important contemporary, actually the founder of contemporary Tibetan literature, who dedicates a whole short story to um, a Bard, a Gesa. Uh, the Gesar epic bard who is murdered during the Cultural Revolution. And this is a very early um, mentioning because it appeared in 1979 in, um, in a newspaper, an officially sanctioned newspaper. And uh, mentioning Cultural Revolution within accepted boundaries doesn't seem to be a problem. But what I found out uh, th- when I you know, re- read uh, these uh, Tibetan short stories and novels that had to deal with the 50s at some point was that there was absolutely no mention uh, of um, what Tibetans uh, in Amdo refer to as the changing of times, uh, which is 1958. Um, what is, you know, in... in um, Maybe in, in Communist Party uh, jargon, it's the rebellion, but uh, it's we could call it an uprising from the Tibetan point of view, a massive, massive in Amdo. And I think we have been talking about it quite a lot in this program. And Beno's book also um, uh, is um, is dedicated to this uh, key moment turning point in uh, Amdo-Tibetan history. Uh, so what I noticed is that the, the, the I found out that the first um, short story that did deal with this period was uh, um, more than in in the form of hints was published in 1992, but that was still quite um, I would call it uh, sotto voce, um, and we can see that how difficult it was for Tibetans to to mention 1958 in. Uh, 
uh, in a more open way uh, in fiction. And it, this, but things changed over the years until um, it culminated with the publication of a full-length novel called Red Tempest, Lumar Ur-Ur by Tsirantun Rup, uh, a famous Amdo-based uh, Tibetan writer who in 2006 published the one novel about this uh this period, uh, but uh, funnily enough, you can say funnily, he does not mention one single date. He doesn't even mention the year 1958 in his novel, but everybody knows uh, what he refers to when he describes the events uh, in this book and his novel. And uh, even that uh, state apparatus has understood because after some months, the book was, the novel was uh, can, uh, was uh, forbidden and um all copies were seized, and Tsirantan uh, went into trouble for for having published this book. Uh, so I, I described the, bo- the the content of the book and the and the book uh, uh, the process and and the consequences, as well as how uh, difficult you know uh, problematic uh, historical times can and cannot be told through literature. So that leads me to maybe one important point I think uh, is that literature as a source of knowledge. In fact, is often neglected by historians. Although we've seen, for instance, Martha Nussbaum talking about poetic justice, the importance of the literary when it comes to law and 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 right. Um, uh, sorry, law uh, uh, studies. Uh, and and more authors are studying. Maybe now our humanities are trying to show that studying literary texts closely in conjunction with more classical historic graphical material can help us refine our understanding of subjectivities at a given period of time. Of course, literature cannot be used in isolation. Uh, it has to be combined with other material, as I just said. And we have to be aware of its limitation. You know, it's it's a it's a work of art that is produced by an elite most of the time in a specific frame. But uh, with the same can can be said. We've seen that that historiography is also produced in a specific context. So, and and maybe my the point of my article is that this is even more true. That the value of studying literature is even more true in the case of Tibet. Tibet is a highly literary culture, uh, and the um, cultural. Uh, environment today is highly restrained and I I call it heterogeneous. It's a Chinese frame political environment in which Tibetans have to maneuver. So uh, being equipped with a long history of literature, uh, literary writing, uh, usually it's poetry, but they have taken taken up fiction more recently. Tibetans have developed uh, literature as a favorite and possibly the most yeah, the the most clearly allowed public expression of subjectivity that that is tolerated uh, to a certain extent, of course, by the Chinese state and authorities. You know, they fund Chinese state and authorities. They do fund uh, journals, um, novel or publishing houses. So um, my suggestion by by writing this article is here, or what I want to, what I mean is is um, there's a double message, so to speak. First. Uh, I found out that in the case of painful and I would call it inconvenient memories, uh, literature can be a resource resource for us to um, to uh, gather knowledge of how educated Tibetans engage in aesthetic writing to discuss or reflect upon their present and their past as Tibetans in authoritarian China. And 
uh, I may refer you also to Sebastian Weg, who has shown in an article how he used fiction to quote construct a claim to form uh, to a form of his sorry to construct a claim to a form of historicity when it comes to studying the under researched understudied anti rightist movement and he was uh, for this he he, he develops his uh, his um, uh, study of this um, historical moment on the novel by Yang Xianhui. Uh, Chronicles of uh, Jiabiengu, which was published in, in, in the year 2000. Um, this, is, uh, this is true for almost all of the untellable Tibetan versions of recent, recent history. They have, it, it can be tackled through fiction, although uh, with a lot of caveat and uh, precautions. And um, to return to, uh, to the book, um, I wanted to show also that in the Tibetan context, Literature is linked with uh, what Marianne Hirsch has called post-memory. Uh, she uses this concept to describe how children of trauma survivors um, often make sense, rep uh, represent and perpetuate the traumatic memories of the generation that preceded them through museum, arts, pictures, cartoons, novels and films, uh, and use them to reflect upon themselves and to what it means to, to grow up as the son, the son or children or, or daughter of, of survivors. Uh, they don't use uh, post that you know they don't resort to post memory to make up for a lack of witnessing because their parents have been able to be witnesses and to express their uh, being as witnesses. But in the Tibetan case, Literature, I found, is the only allowed medium that enables the sheer discussion about these traumatic events because open historical research is not an option and um, people who did experience these traumatic years often didn't have the chance to, exp to um, exp explain or, yeah, or put it on the public, uh, public sphere. As for Xenia de Hering's chapter, uh, it deals with joys and sorrows of the Naktsang boy. Um, this is the name of an autobiography by Naktsang Nulo. Uh, it's a rare type of autobi autobiography that was published in uh, 27. It's published in Tibetan language in the PRC. Its author was born in 1948 and Thus, he was a key insight witness to the 1950s, the Chinese takeover, and more precisely, the fateful 1950, the year 1958, when, as Tibetans in Amdo say, times turned around. Also, uh, Xenia shows that Naktsang Nulo, the author of this autobiography, has opted in a strategic way for a type of a literary narration that is based upon or resorts to what she called childlike naivete and uh, sh and she shows in the conclusion that this apparently innocuous mode of narration enabled the book to be not only published but also that its literary format uh, was able to grab the attention of many readers and enabled its exceptional reception among young readers who for many of them or some of them discovered uh, 1958 uh, through the book, through this choice of a literary uh, rendering of a historical period. So, um, yeah, so the use of uh, literature and fiction is um, is maybe an undertapped uh, topic in, uh, 
in Tibetan studies. And I think these two chapters possibly bring, bring these to light. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, definitely. These two chapters really show that we need to be paying more attention to literary productions. So lastly, how has historiography on Tibetan history under Mao changed since Xi Jinping came into power? This is a question that our listeners might be sort of wondering about. Um, I, I, I can give a stab at that. Um, and I'm sure maybe Robbie and Francois has more insight into it than I, but, but for one, I think that the state's sort of foundational decision to identify itself as a multinational state, a dual minzu guoja, back in, in 1949, made of a, what becomes of, of 56 distinct nationalities, meant that, um, at least other than particularly repressive moments like the Cultural Revolution, difference, for the most part, had to be celebrated on some level. Uh, even if it was done in uh, carefully managed ways. Um, so I guess I would argue that behind the colorful clothes and the dancing that we are all probably familiar with, it did provide some space for alternative notions about the past to be publicly aired, even if they were done so in the ways we've been describing in, in sort of circumscribed uh, ways uh, through, and this includes things like education in local languages, publishing uh, in local languages, nationality, universities, et cetera, which again are, are all state institutions, but they did provide some uh, space, I think, for, for local expression, such as, as, as I think Francois uh, suggested a little bit ago. Um, based on what we've been seeing in recent years, however, with things like the so-called sonification of religion, the end of, of, of bilingual education, as they call it, and of course, the horrific situation in Xinjiang, I can only imagine that in the, the, the new era of Xi Jinping's uh, vision, as I think it's being called, and his expressed notion of a, of a nation of shared destiny, that minority identity in all of its forms, even those that have been considered sort of more benign, uh, are more and more seen as dangerous to the state and dangerous to the, the nation, making me think that the already limited space to publicly remember the past will only get smaller and probably come at, at higher personal cost for those that, that want to express it. Um, but maybe my colleagues have, have other thoughts. Yeah, I, I think that that's right. We're, we are looking at a historic shift in China from the accommodationist rhetoric and some kind of practice towards the non-Han, towards the, uh, roughly speaking, assimilationist trend. And it... it, it it's, it's very important for what we're discussing because it's not, I think when we talk like that, we still are liable to present to ourselves and to others the idea of kind of two monolithic bodies, you know, a Chinese or post-Chinese kind of supporter of the Chinese state narrative and a Tibetan popular narrative that may be oppositional. But, but I think, firstly, that binary view is wrong uh, there's lots of sh these things are shaded. There's many, many positions between those polar opposites in the outside these countries. We see everything in, probably in a polar way, either one or the other, but it's probably not like that at all in reality for many people. Of course, some people will be totally opposed to the other side. Certainly, Chinese state people are totally opposed to anything coming from the Tibetan side, but the Tibetans and other Maoists may have to find themselves spread across the whole range of possible positionalities. And that's something that we need to keep in mind all the time uh, when we talk about this. When we say that there's no 
uh, in the text we're looking at very little actual judgment about the legitimacy of China's presence. They don't go to that issue explicitly, although we might guess some things about that. Um, it doesn't just mean that people are frightened of saying that. It also starts to mean that we have to re-interrogate ourselves about our assumptions that a rewriting of the state history is also a, a desire to overthrow that state or, or a desire to destroy its claim to legitimacy. It will be in many, many cases. There's no question that many Tibetan writers are in jail. Uh, at the moment, one Gosherab Gyatso just given a 10-year sentence for no obvious reason for writing about Tibetan culture and many others. So there are, there are people who are heavily punished for even hinting at that. But there will be many people whose positions we don't really know who will be in the mid-place, mid in the mid-range, where they th may think, well, you know, maybe it's a good thing about that the Chinese are modernizing us, but uh, terrible what they've done to our culture, for example. So I think the reason I mention that is because what Benno just described about this historic shift back towards the assimilationist approach, which was pretty prominent in the late Qing, um, uh, in fact, very prominent in the late Qing and the Tibetan areas and other areas, is it's going to produce a generation of Tibetans who don't know anything about Tibetan history. And we see that in the, the what is it, August 4th uh, ruling from uh, the Ministry of Education in China that all preschool education from uh, this term, from, well, from last term, September last year, has to be carried out in Putonghua, in Chinese. So we're going to see children in Tibet and other areas who are going to be educated in Chinese. And they're not just educated in that language at preschool level. And, huge percentage of them go to preschool. Uh, we've seen videos of a famous Tibetan uh, dissident intellectual in Beijing. She's released videos of kin kindergarten uh, in Lhasa where they are having to perform reenactments of the Red Army arriving in Tibet in the, in the 50s or whatever. They're, they're, they're ingesting, they're, they're being fed this history from a very early age. We don't know what effect that is going to have. But it's, it, it's a very significant element that we have to be very aware of. And I want to mention one other thing, which is when we look at the difference between the Chinese changes in Chinese history writing and changes in Tibetan history writing, from a China perspective, they look a bit similar. There's this trauma phase that we describe with the Tibetan oral histories. Um, and Sebastian Weig, who's really the leading thinker about changes in Chinese historiography, uh, has said there are three phases, trauma, then nostalgia, then critical inquiry and public debate. We don't have critical inquiry and public debate openly in Tibet, of course. Uh, we don't really have nostalgia very much. I've seen some signs of it when I've been in Lhasa, but not, not very prominently. But it's not a case of Tibet being behind China and following the same pattern. I think we have to frame it quite differently. Uh, you know, in China, the framing, uh, and Sebastian Weg makes this very clear, is, is in authoritarian societies, your your space for rewriting history is very limited, but there are ways to do it. But in a colonial authoritarian society, an area under an authoritarian state, which is actually basically a colonial type of administration, you, you, your options are quite different. Uh, and the, Because you have your own history and you don't really have access to that own history.
So it's it's a very complicated situation, and I don't think we can quite measure it against the Chinese situation. They're really very different creatures. On the one hand, Chinese people trying to find space to talk about their past, but in, in the Tibetan case, and I think the other non-Han peoples, uh, these are occupied. I don't know about the word, which word to use. Colonized peoples, who 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 whose whole like whose whole history is at stake. Whether they have a history almost of their own is is at stake. It, it's a it's a much more perilous problem, and it's going to take a long time for people to be able to find a way to to recover that without being punished, uh, or, or or before it all gets lost as the assimilationist uh, wave gathers momentum. Thank you. Thank you. This is a really, really important point that you're making. Thank you for bringing that to our attention. I really appreciate um, your mentioning of the authoritarian state versus the colonial state. We really need to uh, think about how we should reframe um, um, our conversations and studies right, on these borderland regions of, of the PRC. Uh, Professor Hobbin, would you like to add something? Yes, I wanted to maybe to add yet another dimension. I, I, I also appreciate the qualification of the situation as a colonial, colonial authoritarian uh, situation. And I think maybe what prevents us from having a clear idea maybe of what of course, lack of access to the field prevents us from having clear ideas and restraints, self-restraint when we discuss with Tibetans on the field makes it you know, often complicated to get a clear idea of what's going on. Uh, uh, but uh, usually we find, or I, I find the, maybe the parallel with you know, the ex-Soviet Union quite interesting to think of uh, Tibet, um, because my focus is Tibet, you know, uh, within uh, the whole of the PRC. I, you know, I, I like to think what happened in the Czech Republic, what happened in Poland, and how did, you know, the intellectuals, what was the, you know, the, the dynamism or the situation there. But uh, it has, you know, this has its limits, not only because the Czech Republic was a republic, Poland was a country, which is, you know, of course, which is not the case uh, in the in a, a PRC uh, overall frame. But I think the, on, the other very important dimension that we should keep in mind and that may contribute to the eraser, uh, erasing of this past from uh, collective memory, so to speak, among Tibetans uh, through uh, state surveillance and uh, control over um, language, uh, education, is also because we see a very affluent society emerging. And the economical factor is important. You know, China is becoming the second, you know, uh, richest uh, world country. And and to a certain extent, of course, Tibetans uh, are in, in the PRC and they, you know, an affluent society is emerging too. And and when, contrary to what was happening in the Soviet Union, where, although I'm not a specialist, but, you know, economy was not exactly flourishing uh, in the 1970s uh, anywhere in the Soviet Union, we can see that the maybe the, the, tra- the trap of um, materialism or cons- the, the triumph of consumerism uh, may also contribute to um, Tibetans and well, PRC citizens in general and Tibetans, including Tibetans, not to dare or not even to think of questioning, uh, find it hard to question the overall narrative because after all, life 
in terms of material comfort is uh, is much more enjoyable now that it was maybe 20 or 30 years back. They can see it in their everyday life. Um, so um, I think it adds to the complexity of the situation and uh, uh, possibly the 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 yeah the risk that uh, er- eraser of memory and history uh, may be quicker or easier than we we could have come uh, you know considered or contemplated or imagined. Thank you for adding that. And this volume. Um, will be a great place to start, uh, for example, in the classroom, you know, to urge students to think about these these different th- discussions and maybe framing our conversations about Tibet, uh, modern Tibet, in a different way. So thank you so much all for, for you know, creating such an important and significant contribution to, to, the, to different fields, right, to the field of Tibetan studies, but also Chinese studies. Um, so before I let you go, I know I've taken up a lot of your time already, but um, before we end our discussion for today, uh, there are some sort of closing questions for you. Um, what is something that you're working on right now, your current project, if you can share a little bit with us? And also, what is one new book that you would recommend to our listeners? Uh, maybe we'll start with Professor Barnett. I'm uh working uh, with colleagues uh, all across uh, Europe, actually, um, on trying to develop mm, uh, AI and machine learning to make it much easier for us to read Chinese official documents. And the reason I'm doing that is because none of us can really go to Tibet anymore or Xinjiang to do research. The archives are basically closed anyway. And what we get out of those countries, those areas, is Chinese propaganda, really, official texts, which are very, very heavily um, edited, very, very obscure in what they reveal. Uh, but uh, I believe that, you know, like China watchers in the past or Kremlinologists in the past, you know, very skilled people can notice important uh, hints or changes or a shift of a particular keyword or arrangement of a photograph or something that can be very significant. And I think we can train uh, AI to help us identify those important shifts. And there's a lot of ways of doing that. So that, that's really what I'm working on now. It's, it's, it's a form of open source analysis, looking at texts and seeing whether we can get, we'd have to get a lot of funding to do it, to get funding to help us to identify which of the thousands of propaganda texts coming out each day on the web or on WeChat are, are containing actual substantive information that would help us understand what's happening. And I should say, we've already had quite spectacular results in just using, without using machine learning, just using our own eyes, me and some colleagues. And we've, we've identified these villages that China has built across the Bhutanese border inside northern Bhutan, that of course doesn't say that they're in Bhutan, says they're in China. But um, uh, So that's a, a really major development in the whole way we should think about China's foreign policy. It's actually settling certain areas in, in these neighboring small countries. And, and we're already also, I'm working on material showing about how nuns uh, who've been expelled from major nunneries in eastern Tibet, how they're being monitored uh, in, in uh, central Tibet and other areas. Um, so that's what I'm working on at the moment. Um, in terms of new books, well, actually, 
one thing I would recommend is uh, is Jeremy Barmay's sort of ongoing work on his website, ChinaHeritage.net, because he's developed what he calls New Sinology. He's one of the leading Sinologists. And, and he actually, he was a very, very important figure in first thinking about Tibet and Tibetan literature in the 80s, published a book called Seeds of Fire. But he, he's someone who looks at contemporary Chinese politics through the lens of the past. And the past can be a very distant past, it can be dynastic, or it can be Kuomintang or early communist. This is a really important way. It's a historian's way of bringing light to look at what we see now. And one of the things he points out is there's nothing really aberrational about Xi Jinping. You know, the press likes to say this is a huge break, but it isn't. Just like assimilationism, this is not a break with the past. This is a cyclical return. Uh, this is a continuation of, of a communist momentum and of a, a, a late Qing one in that case. So I, I always recommend him. I want to put in a plug for another book very quickly. It's not a new one. I, the book that most was formative for me uh, was uh, the, the Raj Quartet, the books written by Paul Scott, I think in the, in the 70s. Uh, it, it's just an extraordinary account of the, 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 the colossal tragedy of the British colonialism in India. I think that book is really important for us to try to understand colonialism. And that may be really helpful in the cases we're talking about here. Thank you. Wow, fascinating, fascinating. Um, and uh, Professor uh, Huabin, would you like to go next? Sorry, yes. My, okay, current project is um, focusing on the French-based exiled Tibetan society uh, because we have now about 8,000 Tibetans living in France and hardly any survey has ever been done on on them. So uh, with a team of uh, bright co French-based colleagues, we, we, we want to have a project that uh, to, to, yeah, to survey and see how Tibetans in France struggle between uh, their, um, their quite well-shared wish to maintain Tibetan language and culture in a foreign context and the f expectations on the French state part for them to integrate in French society. So that's what I said. That, yeah, that's a, like a long-term project. Uh, in terms of reading, um, I'd like to mention Liu Xiaoyuan's uh, book called To the End of Revolution, the Chinese Communist Party in Tibet 1949-59, published in, in 2020 at Columbia University Press. And for those who know me, they will be surprised to to hear that I really appreciate his claimed and assumed, uh, sorry, very acclaimed um, Sino-centered perspective, which I think is uh, adds a lot of value to the book. He he, he uses um, um, previously unsearched, unresearched material to give us an account of how um, the yeah the um, the communist party uh, from mao to dan xiaoping and other more local leaders uh de decided and sometimes hesitated or were forced to or or made uh, haphazard decisions or on the contrary um planned uh, well in advance uh, the takeover of tibet and uh, i find his approach extremely interesting um and fresh and uh, a, a big proof, I think, of independent thinking. And I really liked his book. And I, I would have liked to mention two books in Tibetan uh, that I have just discovered. Uh, these are memoirs or autobiographies of, um, of two witnesses of the 
fateful 1958 year in Amdo. One is published by in, in uh, Dharamsala, and the author is Damcho Pelsang. He was born in Golok in 46, so he was too young to be jailed in 58, but he was not too young to undergo starvation uh, after the, during the Great Leap Forward, just followed 58 in Amdo. And he was he's, he's very, a key witness on the moment that we have little material about, as we've been discussing. He escaped in 93, and then he's lived in India since, since then, and he published his autobiography very recently. Um, it's in Tibetan. And then there's another book which uh, I have actually not uh, been able to to get hold of yet, but I've met his author when I was in Kathmandu recently, uh, Amdotandrup, who was uh, another is another witness to uh, 58 and 59, in fact. He was born in 33, 1933 in Amdo, and he has a very interesting life. He's... Um, he was first, as a young man, he was a very young man, as a teenager, I should say, he was a soldier for the Kuomintang and then enjoyed the, P- the CCP in Amdo and worked in Golok as a translator. But then in March 1959, he defected uh, and uh, uh, joined the Dalai Lama and uh, uh, the Dalai Lama's brother in India and uh, became the top, top general, although the title was not general, special field officer for the a special frontier force, which is the Tibetan uh, platoon in Indian Army that was created in 1962 by uh, Nehru uh, right uh, after the brief Sino-Indian War. So this man has an extraordinary destiny, and I, I believe his book is going to be extremely interesting. Uh, it's, it was published, I think, in November 21. Um, so I'm looking forward to reading it. Thank you. Thank you for these wonderful recommendations. And, and Professor Weiner? Sure. Um, I'm finishing up an article on Hui Muslims, actually, and rebellion in Northwest China during the 1950s. There was a series of massive, uh, of large rebellions, I should say, maybe not massive, in, uh, between 1949 and 1953 that haven't really been uh, uh, researched much. So I'm writing about that and how they were treated differently than, than Amdo Tibetans uh, during that period. And I'm also working on a larger project that wants to look at the creation of, of sort of the Northwest uh, through processes of state territor- territorialization and minoritization that would stretch from the late Qing through at least into the 19 or through the 1950s. So those are sort of the two things I'm, I'm working at on uh, presently. As far as reads go, I would certainly recommend um, the work by Darren Byler on Xinjiang and many other authors on, on Xinjiang, but I'll highlight him. His uh, short sort of primer, In the Camps, I think is something that everyone should read. He has a new book out called Terror Capitalism, which I haven't read yet. It just came out recently, but it's very going to be very important. And then just getting back to what uh, my colleagues were saying and, and Francois highlighting these two um, Tibetan uh, writers who, who, who wrote about the 1958 Amdo Rebellion. Um, Naksan Nulo's book, which um, uh, Zine De Herring writes about in our, in our, in our uh, edited volume, I'm not sure if it was clear or not, it's been translated into English as My Tibetan Childhood, and, and published by uh, Duke University Press. I think Robbie actually wrote the introduction and I think was uh, the editor, uh, or one of the editors at least. Um, and uh, it's, just, it's just a harrowing account, and, and I really recommend everybody read it. There's no way you can't, uh, you can read that book and, and, not, and walk away not, think, it, it, not understanding the tremendous amounts of trauma that exists uh, in these regions among many Tibetan people. Uh, individually generational as a community. And I think that helps us understand the difficulties that China has had since then 
uh, incorporating these peoples and places into the modern nation state in the way that maybe uh, Chinese leaders had imagined. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, these are all really important works that, um, you know, hopefully our listeners will will, will go and, and pick up a copy and explore further. Um, so thank you so much, everyone, for again, for taking the time to uh, join us on the show and, and share your expertise and your passion about this project, which is really, really uh, a privilege for us. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.